to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Today we come to Luke chapter 5 and verse 27 to 32. The series is Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and the focus today is on how Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Uh, I read a statistic that says that more than 80% of internet users in the United States have searched at one time or the other health-related topics online. It was a Pew Research study on life that was looking at the way people use the internet and the things that they look for and the information they're searching for. It's one of the most popular topics, uh, as a matter of fact. And searching for information can be helpful to us. It can potentially lead to improved care. But as we know, uh, self-diagnosis can also be kind of dangerous and unreliable and uncertain. Uh, You can create a lot of anxiety for yourself when you have diagnosed yourself with something much more serious than what you actually have. Or uh, you might let yourself off of the hook and when in fact you have a pretty serious condition. Some physicians call this uh, Google University, where uh, people don't go to medical school, they go to Google University and uh, find out whatever their problem is and determine what they need. There's also a formal term called cyberchondria. Think about it for a minute. Uh, It's like hypochondriac, but it's cyberchondria, where you're escalating your concerns and you're taking common symptoms that are based on the review of online results that you have determined what the situation is. Now, by the way, I found all of this information online, so it's terribly reliable. (laughs) But the point being, uh, what we need is an accurate diagnosis. We don't need to diagnose ourselves and then determine that everything is okay if it's not. You see, that's what people sometimes do when it comes to their spiritual condition. They ascribe to their own version of religion. They declare themselves spiritually well when they're not. And when in fact what they need is genuine repentance, which leads to the righteousness of God. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, verse 31, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, thank you today for your word, for the privilege we have to gather around it and to hear about the calling of Levi, of Matthew, to come and follow you to hear the purpose for which Jesus came. And I pray that these 
words would uh, go deep into our hearts and into our souls and that we would be mindful of what our true diagnosis is and then what the actual cure is and that we would find that in Christ and Christ alone. So work in our lives now by the power of the Holy Spirit and help us to understand this text that is before us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Levi here refers to himself as Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. He was in a position as a tax collector, and many people think that just as Simon was named Peter, which means uh, little rock or the rock uh, by the Lord, so Levi was likewise tagged as Matthew, meaning gift of God. If that's in fact the case, that he had been known as Levi, and then he became known as Matthew through the calling of Jesus, or if in fact it was just the God-given name that his parents had uh, named him and given to him, it's meaningful because this was a man who was hated by many people, and yet he truly became a gift from God to his people. He was not liked because of his position. His position caused him not to be accepted at all, in fact, by the religious community of the day. Uh, The Romans collected taxes in what they referred to as a system of tax farming. And basically, here's what they would do. They would assess a district, a tax figure, an amount of money that they wanted to collect based on the number of the citizens that were there and other things that were going on within that district. And then they would sell the rights to collect that amount of taxes to the highest bidder who would become the tax collector. The buyer would then hand over the assessed amount at the end of the year. But whatever he could collect above and beyond what that assessed amount was in that district, he could keep for himself. Now, as you might imagine, this led to outright extortion at times. There were taxes that everybody paid, like the poll tax, for example, which was very difficult to manipulate. But there were other taxes, including import and export taxes and sales taxes and all kinds of taxes similar to what we have today, even in our system. And it was rife with trouble because of the manipulation of what the tax collector could do within the system. He could, for example, stop anybody on the road if he wanted to. And if somebody was traveling with goods and and they were going to sell those goods, he could make him unpack everything that he had on the road and charge him pretty much anything that he wanted to charge him. The Talmud actually described tax collectors as robbers. Not surprisingly, uh, they also would hire what they called enforcers. And these enforcers would help them to collect the taxes that they were trying to collect uh, to be able to get to the level that they wanted to get to. So rare was honesty among the tax collectors that a Roman writer remarked in amazement that he once saw a monument to an honest tax collector. Jewish tax collectors were easy, easily the most hated men in their, in their particular society. Uh, they were classified along with the prostitutes and the pagans, and they could not serve as witnesses in court, and they were excommunicated from synagogues. And perhaps leading up to this whole scene that we find here in Luke chapter 5, 
Jesus and Levi or Matthew had already been dialoguing. We don't know. We're not given the background into this situation, but evidently he knew something about Jesus and maybe he had even asked questions about spiritual matters. Maybe Jesus had answered them, but Jesus stops and takes a good look at him. And you can think probably what was going through Levi's mind here. What does Jesus want from me? And the answer came suddenly. And the answer was, follow me. Now we get some insight into this because this is what Jesus does in our lives as well. He says simply to us, follow me. Follow Jesus as his disciple. Follow Jesus with a life that is transformed by his grace. And what Luke stresses here is that this man was willing to make a decisive break with his old life and to follow Jesus. Literally, the language is, that Levi was following him. So in other words, it's an imperfect indicative that indicates a continuous pattern of life. So it's not just an initial leaving behind and change of direction. It is, in fact, a continual direction. It's an ongoing process. And that's what discipleship is in our lives. There's that initial break where we begin to follow Jesus, but then it's the lifelong pattern of following after him with our lives. Now, this is utterly amazing because of all the people in Capernaum, Levi was the most publicly unacceptable candidate for discipleship. Don't miss this point. Jesus sought out the man that nobody else wanted. They didn't just not want him. Everybody would have been happy if he had come under severe judgment. But this is one of the most amazing things about the ministry of our Lord. Here was Jesus. He'd already performed many miracles by this time in the gospel. But the miracle that was going to be on display was how Jesus can change the most unlikely of characters by his grace and turn them into some of the most faithful disciples when they answer the call to come and follow him. And we have to remember that as we're sharing the good news about Jesus, that we don't make the value judgment about a person as to whether or not they'll respond, first of all, or if they do respond in repentance and faith, how God could use them. It's not up to us to categorize people. It's up to us to be faithful with the good news. Now, in leaving what he had behind, uh, Levi was making a substantial sacrifice, He's already a wealthy man at this point. Unlike the fishermen who had followed Jesus, he would not be able to go back to his old job if things didn't work out. He didn't have a contingency plan if he turned his back on tax collecting. So he, in celebration of what had just happened, prepared, the Bible says, a great banquet at his house, and many were invited. Now, among these many who were invited was a large crowd of tax collectors. There was a joyful celebration in honor of Jesus who had called him. But in the midst of that, the religious leaders were incensed. They couldn't believe what was taking place, so they began to complain to the disciples. And they asked the question of Jesus, why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Not only was Jesus with these people, but the eating and the drinking implies that there was close proximity, that there was fellowship. This was a 
personal gathering. This wasn't just a, a public gathering of sorts, but when there was a celebration, there was fellowshipping that was taking place. And Jesus was mixing with these people that the religious leaders decided were unworthy. And there was no way that he should be doing this. You see, as the legalist saw it, uh, it would be impossible to remain ceremonially pure if you consented to dine with people who were considered undesirables. So Jesus makes his purpose clear, and he tells them, look, those who are healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. Now, clearly, this is a play on words because the religious leaders were sick in their religion and in their self-righteousness. But Jesus was driving home the point that he had come to people who saw their need. You see, you've got to see your need if you're going to come and follow Jesus. You've got to see your unrighteousness if you're going to receive the righteousness of God. You've got to understand that you're on the wrong road if you're going to get on the right road. You've got to understand what it is that God can do in your life. And Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. And he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, here's the main idea, I think, of this uh, entire narrative that we've just read. The invitation to salvation is not received by those who consider themselves worthy, but rather those who recognize they are unworthy and are in need of the grace of Jesus and are willing to repent and believe. Let me say that again. The invitation to salvation is not received by those who consider themselves worthy, but rather those who recognize they are unworthy and are in need of the grace of God in Jesus and repent and believe. I want us to focus our attention on what it means for Jesus to call sinners to repentance. What's he talking about when he's calling the unrighteous? those who recognize their need. What's he talking about when he's referencing calling sinners to repentance? Well, first of all, repentance is a change of mind, which leads to a change of behavior. This is the definition of what repentance is. It literally means to change one's mind in respect to sin and to God and to self, and to turn to God and from sin. So it's something that happens where you recognize the reality of the situation and you change your mind about it. You no longer see yourself as worthy, but you understand you're unworthy. You don't see yourself as righteous in some type of religion or some type of self-effort or some type of goodness. You see yourself at a deficit. You see yourself in a predicament. And when that change of mind comes then what can happen then is if you act on it is that the change of behavior can come in that you are turning from all of that stuff and you're turning to God. It is an about face. That's what repentance is by definition, to turn from sin and to turn to righteousness. W. Vine said years ago in the New Testament, the subject repentance chiefly has reference to repentance from sin. And this change of mind involves both a turning from sin and a turning to God. So this is not just a turning away, but it's a decisive 
turning to. And that's what has to happen if salvation is going to take place in our lives. Where we're turning away from something and we're turning to something. Another commentator said in its fullest sense, it's a term for a complete change of orientation. Involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. In the Bible, the idea of repentance in the Old Testament is strong. Repentance in the Old Testament was often accompanied by outward signs. It was accompanied by the signs of fasting and wearing sackcloth and lamenting your situation. There was a very evident move to demonstrate that you were repenting, that you were turning from the sin. In fact, the prophets called people repeatedly to turn around, to change direction, to surrender their lives. And as they turned around and changed direction and surrendered their lives, they were turning to God. Listen to the words in Joel 2 and verse 12 and 13. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. So the call to turn, the change of mind that, that causes us to turn from our sin and turn to God is driven by this gracious and merciful God who, though he is perfect, through the sacrifice of his son, he's inviting us to come. He's saying to all of us, come unto me. And and he's not saying, get yourself together before you come to me. He says, come to me so that I can get you together. There's a difference. This is not a a reformation of our behavior so that we can have right standing with God. This is a total turning from our sin and turning to God so that he can change us. And then repentance was proclaimed from the beginning of the New Testament, beginning with John the Baptist and then Jesus calling people to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. Repentance was John the Baptist's theme after 400 years of silence from the prophets and the forerunner of Jesus comes on the scene. He's baptizing with a baptism of repentance. He's pointing people to the need to repent and to follow Jesus as the Messiah. And it's a significant part of what his preaching was. Patrick Morley in his book, I Surrender, said, the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. He says it's a change in belief without a change in behavior. It's revival without reformation. It's revival without repentance. And so often that happens in the church. It's almost like we present a truncated gospel. Let's add Jesus to our lives. Let's make Jesus our uh, counselor in the decisions of life. Let's make Jesus our good luck charm for eternity. Now, nobody's saying that verbally, but that's what it turns out to be practically if we're not understanding that repentance is turning from sin and it's turning to the Savior. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in his uh, second letter to Second uh, Corinthians, and it says that uh, he addressed some spiritual problems that had already been addressed in the first letter, but then there were some false teachers who had come in and stirred up even more trouble. And the Corinthians had withdrawn themselves from Paul. 
they had withdrawn themselves from the other apostles and they communicated uh, the desire, did Paul, to restore the fellowship. And he talked to them about the importance of repentance. The genuine apostles had not wronged them. It was the ones who were the false apostles. They'd come in and they'd stirred up trouble and Paul's filled with joy and he's talking to the church at Corinth as his spiritual children. It's a spiritual father dealing with spiritual children. And he tells them what genuine repentance is. And in doing so, he contrasts it with worldly repentance or worldly sorrow that leads to death. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 9. He says, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. Verse 10, for a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So there are two kinds of repentance that are possible. The first kind of repentance is the sorrow of the world. This could be characterized by Uh, embarrassment over what you've done, but not truly a turning away from it. It could be sorrow for getting caught in a particular sin, but not truly a righteous turning away from what you've done to the Lord. See, a lot of people can recognize just by simple logic uh, the unpleasant consequences of sin. I mean, it's not that hard to see uh, the pain that comes from some of the decisions uh, that we make. But if we see only the pain and the consequences of the decisions that we've made, and we only have a a worldly sorrow, it's not going to lead to a sincere turning. Because the sorrow of the world focuses on self rather than focusing on Jesus. The sorrow of the world focuses on pitying our situation rather than wanting true change and deliverance from our situation. That's the first kind of repentance. The second kind of repentance is a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is accompanied by conviction of sin. It comes from the Holy Spirit. When we're convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit, we recognize the offense that we've committed against God. We, we are led to genuine repentance. And the sorrow of the Corinthians, according to Paul's writing to them had produced diligence and a desire to clear themselves. There there was a holy fear in their lives as a sincere sign of turning away from sin. Now, in our passage in Luke, we have Levi, the tax collector, willing to leave everything that he had behind and follow Jesus. But in contrast to that, Those who thought they were righteous were condemning the fact that he evidently had done this. Now, I listened to an interview this week on social media with a man by the name of Michael Faust interviewing, of all people, wait for it, Justin Bieber. Now, admittedly, 
Bieber has had a questionable version of the Christian faith, to say the least. He's the pop phenom, the international superstar. But as I listened to that interview with Bieber, the question came to mind, is God up to something in his life? Listen to what he said. You can find this online for yourself. He said, I really took a deep dive into my faith. I believed in Jesus, but when it says following Jesus is actually turning away from sin, what it talks about in the Bible, that there's not faith without obedience, it's like I had faith that Jesus died on the cross for me, but I'd never implemented it in my life. So when, you, when did you decide, the question came from the interviewer, to actually move within the guidelines, listen to this, and when did you find yourself moving away from, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to drink or do drugs or sleep around. How did you get out of that world? And what was the turning point? And here's what Bieber said. I think it was my perception of who re- Jesus really is. I had really bad examples of Christians in my life who would say one thing and do another. So they were my direct example of who Jesus was. I didn't take it as seriously because I didn't have good examples. What he did is the gift. The forgiveness is the thing that we look at. I am going to worship God. He has given me something so good. And then this question came. Were you on a path of self-destruction? Yeah, for sure, 100%. So I'm very grateful to have influences in my life that have played a huge part in me seeing their relationship with Jesus, their relationship with their wives, their relationship with their kids, and saying, that's what I want. Now, his music has not yet followed this profession. And we yield up Bieber to the Lord just as we would any other individual. Time will tell if his repentance is genuine. But you know what? Time will tell if our repentance is genuine as well. I'd not want to be the first person to jump out there and the possibility of being like the Pharisees and the scribes when Levi was changed, when his life was saved by Jesus. You see, we have a hard time understanding the magnitude of the grace of God and the depths of God's forgiveness. We, we think of ourselves as relatively good people. And when other people who we judge as worse than ourselves come to a point of faith, we wonder, was that even real? Have you ever thought about somebody probably looked at your life and said the same? Is that even real? Ultimately, it's up to God, and our lives will demonstrate whether or not it's genuine. Repentance is a change of mind, which leads to a change of behavior. Second, repentance is a command and a gift. It's a command and a gift. Now, God calls all people everywhere to repent. And the reason that God calls all people everywhere to repent is because he wants to deliver us from the coming judgment. He wants us to know his forgiveness. He wants us to have the gift of salvation. He's calling us to himself. And in the Old Testament, God commanded the people of Israel to obey his law, and he also warned them of the consequences of breaking it. See, this is how God operates. God does not not just say to us, judgment is coming. He says, these are the consequences when judgment comes. 
And this is the way to be delivered from the judgment. This is your path to me. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. You remember when the Apostle Paul was at Mars Hill in Athens and he was repulsed by all of the false idols and the pagan worship that he witnessed? He was surrounded by the intellectuals of the city and he started his sermon with an observation uh, about the Athenians who had an altar uh, to the unknown God. And he's making an apologetic argument to bring them back to the one true living God. And he explained the one true living God. And here's what he said in Acts 17 and verse 30. These past times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now through the preaching of the gospel, God commands all men everywhere to repent. So in this regard, repentance is a command. That God is commanding all people everywhere to repent, to believe in the gospel, to be saved from judgment. And in calling all men everywhere to repent, God is saying to us, this is the age of grace. This is the opportunity for deliverance. Today is the day of salvation. But the reality is, people are deceived in their sin. Their eyes are blinded. Their hearts are darkened to their condition. And the only way that their eyes can be opened and their hearts be enlightened is when the gospel of the kingdom is communicated. You see, that's what God uses in people's lives when the good news is communicated clearly. He's calling people to repent through the communication, through the sharing, through the preaching of the gospel. And that command to repent demands a response. There's no middle ground on it. Grace can be received or grace can be rejected. God does not force anyone to repent. He provides the pathway to him. And in this, repentance is a gift. He says, repent. But then he also helps us understand that it's a gift. God exalted Jesus, Acts 5 and verse 31, to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So the language of the New Testament is that God gives this, that that it's a gift, that it's something that God possesses and that God commands people to respond to, but then God extends the gift. So it's both a command and a gift. And when Jewish Christians witnessed the salvation of Cornelius and his household, they glorified God in Acts chapter 11 saying, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Paul hoped that through the work of young Timothy, that God would grant repentance to the people so that they would know the truth. This is the beauty of what God does for us. He tells us the situation as it is. He warns us of the situation to come if we don't do anything about it, if we don't respond to his grace. And then he commands us on how to take the right path. And then he gives us as a gift, the gift of repentance. And if we receive it and act upon it and have faith in Jesus, then we're delivered from the consequences. We're rescued from the situation to come. 
And this is what repentance is in the sight of God, that through the preaching of the gospel and the witness of God's people, the Holy Spirit brings a person to be aware of their unrighteousness, to be aware of their sin, to be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Here's the bottom line. If you don't act on the command to repent, if you don't receive the gift, you will remain in your sin. You've got to be willing to say, I'm a sinner. You've got to be real, willing to say that, that you need spiritual healing. You've got to be willing to say that you're in need of the grace of God. If you think you're okay, if you think the situation is all right, then you're in the worst trouble of all. You're no different than those Pharisees and those scribes were because they thought they were healthy when in fact they were sick. And it was only the people who actually saw themselves as sick who were able to get healing. That's the message of the gospel. The forgiveness is available in Christ, and as long as you say you have no need to repent, there will be no true repentance. There will be no forgiveness. You'll struggle with brokenness and bitterness in your life. You'll remain far from the abundant life of Jesus Christ, and you'll remain in your unrighteousness. You remember Jesus, the parable that he told later on in Luke chapter 18? It says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And in the parable in Luke chapter 18, there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and he thought he was okay. He thought he was okay to the point that he actually thanked God that he wasn't like the rest of the people. I mean, can you imagine the pride that was wrapped up in that? Uh, he wasn't like the rest of the sinners, and he recounted the good things that he had done. But there was then, in contrast, a tax collector, and this tax collector had undoubtedly also ruined people's lives and been guilty of the things that they were guilty of. And he hangs his head in sorrow, and he beats his breast, and he gazes at the dust on his feet, and he declares himself as being unworthy of even looking up to heaven by his actions. And all he could do was repent. He had nothing else to offer to God. And he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said in that moment, God heard his prayer and justified him meaning that he declared him righteous. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Repentance is both a command and a gift. Third, repentance and remission of sins is the message of the kingdom of God. It's the message of the kingdom of God. In his preaching, Jesus called for repentance. That was a theme that he opened up with. He connected it to the kingdom. In fact, Matthew 4 and verse 17, at the very beginning of the outset of the ministry of Jesus, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wasn't Jesus preaching uh, about repentance in the kingdom of God on the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, he had major themes that were going on within the Sermon on the Mount. But what he was essentially preaching is that repentance, being poor in spirit, is required 
to be an heir of the kingdom. I mean, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is talking about uh, entrance into the kingdom of God and then how your life is transformed when you enter into the kingdom of God. So that was the theme of Jesus preaching from the beginning is the kingdom. And the key to the kingdom is repentance and faith. The key to the kingdom is recognizing our need to be in the kingdom and that the king of the kingdom has provided the way for us to enter in by his grace. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to buy it. We receive it by faith. And then Jesus preached about repentance, as I've already referenced, in the parables of the kingdom of God. You remember in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, the kingdom of God is compared to a certain man who settled accounts with his servants. And one servant who was unable to pay his debt begged the king for mercy. And the man received mercy from him by having his debt forgiven. The servant then went out and refused to extend the same mercy to a man who was indebted in turn to him. And in the end, the unforgiving servant was delivered to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. Friends, Jesus saw and sees repentance in the kingdom as essential. It, it is a central idea. This genuine change of mind that leads to an evident change of behavior. And it involves recognizing our need not only to receive grace and mercy, but to be people who extend it. So true repentance is going to cause us to extend mercy to others. Jesus preached about repentance in the Great Commission. Listen to what Luke chapter 24 and verse 46 to 48 says. This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the Great Commission. That repentance would be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached a message proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And he said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent. So you want to know how to receive forgiveness for your sins in the kingdom of God? Repent and believe. That's how. That, that's God's way of doing it to where there's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. The name Alfred Nobel might be familiar to you somewhere in history. In 1867, Nobel, who was a Swedish chemist, invented a new high explosive that was referred to as dynamite. Dynamite invented 1867 by Alfred Nobel. He believed that his invention would make war so horrible that nobody would want to continue on in it because it was so awful. Not only did he invent dynamite, he invented other uh, war uh, techniques and explosives that uh, could hurt many people. And instead of ending wars, his inventions made them worse. In fact, they had a devastating impact worse than it had ever been before. He was horrified. He didn't know exactly what to do. And then something interesting happened. This is a true story. 
One morning around the turn of the century, he awoke to read, get this, his own obituary. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, and here's what the obituary said, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. Now, what was the real story that took place? The newspaper had made a mistake, and it was his brother who had died. But as you might imagine, waking up and reading your own obituary would be something that would put you on high alert and have a profound impact on you. And he realized in that moment that he did not want to be known primarily as the person who developed the most effective killing machine of his generation and amassed a fortune in doing so. That sounds more like a villain and not how you would want to be remembered. So here's what Alfred Nobel did. He founded, as we know it, the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, an award for people who foster peace. And here's what Nobel said. Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. What happened? He was given a chance to to make a change. He was given a chance to make a, a big turn and to choose forces of good over evil, as he did before he passed away, caused him not to be known for inventing dynamite and other tools of war. It caused him to be known as a person of peace. Now, I don't know if there's going to be that dramatic of a change in your life or not, but what do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to be remembered for a person and their sin and their self-righteousness and their rebellion against God? Or do you want to be remembered for a person who has repented and had a life change? And here's the last idea I want to give you as we close. Repentance is evidenced by the fruit of holiness. This is how you know, ultimately, repentance is not a work in any way that earns our salvation, but repentance unto salvation does result in works and the fruit of holiness. Listen to the way Clyde Cranford put it in his book, Because We Love Him. He said, the evidence that repentance is real and not a display of emotion at conversion, but works which are appropriate to repentance, restitution for wrongs, Christian service and ministry, and personal spiritual disciplines, such works do not precede conversion. In that case, repentance would mean cleaning up your act and turning over a new leaf in order to be saved, which would characterize a works-based salvation. But repentance is a deliberate choice, a turning of the heart, a preference for Christ, which will be evidenced by how we live our lives. It'll be evidenced by the fruit of holiness. So my message for you today in closing is this. If you have repented and believed in the gospel, live according to the life change that God has wrought in you. Don't live as though nothing has happened. Because if you continue in that, it may be that nothing happened in your life. And if you do not know the Lord today, if you've not experienced his grace, if you've not received the gift of salvation, then my word to you today is repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus. He stands ready to forgive. He will welcome you. Doesn't matter 
where you're coming from or what your background is or what you've done. It doesn't matter how other people look at you or what they think about you. It doesn't matter what your track record is up to this point. God can take all of your track record and he can forgive you in Christ. This is the gospel. And that's why we call it good news. Because of the change that God brings in our lives. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. God, thank you for the time that we've had here to be reminded of how you can change a life. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us in this room who have experienced true life change because we've had a change of mind that led to a change of behavior. We've had a change of mind that has turned us toward Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And you've changed us, transformed us by your power. May our lives demonstrate the fruit of holiness in all that we do and honor and glorify your son. Maybe there's somebody in this room today who needs to repent. They need to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. I pray they'd not leave this place before they take that step. Thank you, God, that you've given us the way through Jesus, your son. And I pray we would live in light of who he is. Bless this time of close and response. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing for a moment.